Uh, if you've been with us at all throughout the summer, uh, we've spent about a month and a half now uh, preaching through uh, the book of Romans. And, and one of the things that, that you've maybe noticed uh, is, is there are some things that, that maybe kind of repeat themselves throughout the book of Romans. Uh, I know as I, as I was preparing for, for a sermon last week, I remember commenting to Pastor Brad, I said, you know, I feel like that there are certain things in here that, that I've, I've said a lot this summer. Uh, because one of the, the centerpieces to, to Paul's theology in the book of Romans, one of the most central themes that, that he unpacks for us is the centrality of righteousness, not through our works, not through our adherence to the law, but righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. Uh, that, that righteousness in the sight of God, that, that right standing and, and relationship with him does not come through our performance of good deeds. It comes through faith in Jesus. Uh, and that is uh, central to, to Paul's thought throughout Romans. Uh, I think it's central to, to the entire scriptures. It's certainly central to us as Lutherans, as, as that is perhaps one of the, the central teachings that sparked the Reformation almost 500 years ago now. That, that we receive a, a right relationship with God, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done. And that is received by us through faith in him. And that faith itself is, is a gift from God granted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But now once you, we come into chapter 12 and, and the latter portion of the book, you, you'll notice that, that what Paul talks about here is very different. Uh, he says things like this, what we see in, in verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here we see Paul's concern in, in what he's writing to the Christians in Rome is not about justification. It's not about how we find our righteousness before God, but he actually gives the direct command to change, right? to, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, 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 that part of, of, of our life as a Christian does mean undergoing a change and, and transformation in the likeness of Christ. And in some ways, this can almost feel to us like sort of this like bait and switch. Because we, we maybe sometimes mistakenly treat things as if it's Jesus who got us in to good graces with God, but now it's us to sort of keep ourselves in. Right, Like, the gospel brought me into the church, but now it's all up to me. The gospel is something that we sort of put in the rear view, but now it's time to focus ahead on getting our lives right, on doing good works, on doing everything that, that God wants us and commands us to do. All the while leaving the cross and, and leaving that teaching of, of justification and, and righteousness in the sight of God through faith in the background. It's sort of like this. It's like Jesus gives us the money for our new startup company, but now it's us to sort of keep it afloat, right? And that revenue stream, we have to be the ones to accomplish that. But you see, to go this route, I think, is a horrible, horrible mistake. 
Because I think it misses entirely what this transformation Paul calls us to do is really all about. That, that being transformed and, and this change that comes about as people who are followers of Jesus now, it, it's not about leaving the gospel in the background. It's not about moving on from the cross, but rather it's about living in the centrality of the gospel. It's living with Christ and what He has done at the forefront of our very lives. I believe that the truth that Paul draws out for for us here, and, and everywhere we see Him call us to good works, is really Him saying this, the the shape of your hope determines the shape of your life. Let me say that again. The shape of your hope determines the shape of your life. So in other words, the thing that you put your hope in, that that hope that you have for for your vision of, of what a good life looks like, what human flourishing looks like, the thing that you put your hope in will determine what your life looks like. And so for people who are followers of Jesus, the shape of our hope has radically changed. And therefore, our lives naturally follow suit. And and I don't think this is just true for Christians. I think this is true for human beings. The the shape of our hope always determines the shape of our lives. That, That every single person, the thing that we put our hope in, will determine and shape the way that we live our lives. To to kind of go back to some of the language that that Pastor Brad and I have used uh, for some time now regarding discipleship, that the things that we value will shape our practices. So the things that we emphasize in life and and look to for, for meaning and purpose will shape the choices we make. And the, and the things that we do, it'll, it'll shape how we use our money, how we use our gifts and our time and our resources. The shape of our hope determines the shape of our lives. And the reality is, is that without the gospel at the center, our hope will always be placed in some form of human effort. And, and I think this is especially true for us as Americans. Uh, because as you and I know, we, we live in a country that is, is shaped by this value of, of, of sort of a rugged individualism. It's the old pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Th- this idea of, of constant self-reliance and looking to ourselves as our hope. That's ultimately what our individualism is about. It is that my hope is found in me. And when this is the shape of our hope, when our hope is placed in ourselves, it will undoubtedly determine the shape of our lives. This individualism, it causes us to to oftentimes operate out of a place of selfishness. Because we value our own personal success and well-being above all else. It'll often cause us to operate with a lot of pride and and arrogance if if we revel in our accomplishments and and say, hey, everyone, look what I've done. Or on the flip side, it'll cause us to to be filled with with pain and and, and despair and and self-loathing when when we maybe look at, at what someone else has accomplished and feel like I can't measure up to what that person has done or what that person has achieved. Or what that person has. 
The shape of our hope is, is ourselves. It determines the shape of our lives. And the unfortunate reality of, of what this individualism does is it makes it really easy to vilify other people. To make every other person look like an enemy. Right? Because every single person can become a threat to my own well-being. My own success. When the shape of our hope is is individualism and and self-reliance, it's easy to turn other people into enemies. Or at best, we maybe turn other people into tools and and objects for us to use. That people are only good to us insofar as they promote my well-being and promote my personal success. The shape of our hope, it determines the shape of our lives. But you see, part of the problem with that is that so long as our hope is in ourselves, the, the, the law of God in Scripture will always and only speak to us judgment. The law of God will always stand as that reminder that you haven't done enough, you haven't acquired enough, you haven't accomplished enough. It will always demand doing more and achieving more and getting more. It'll never be enough. And not only will your hope be incomplete in this life, it it gets even worse because that law of God stands and accuses us before God, reminding us how, how far we have fallen short of Him and His desire for us, His intention for us. When, when the hope, when the shape of our hope is in ourselves, the inevitable response is, is despair. It, it, it's hatred, it's, it's, it's violence. As we attack anyone who, who poses a threat. And so what we discover throughout the scriptures, and and particularly in Paul's words to the Romans, is to not find our hope in ourselves. Paul says you need to look for your hope in something else. You need to look for your hope, in fact, in someone else. You need to look for your hope in that one place, that one person who will never disappoint, who will never demand more. You need to look for your hope in Jesus who promises that because of his perfection and his death in our place, we already stand reconciled to God. The scriptures call us to look for our hope in Christ who promises that if we simply come and put our trust and our faith in him, He promises to redeem and restore us, to restore all of creation. He he points us to this greater, eternal, lasting hope where we get to dwell with Him eternally in His kingdom that has no end. He promises to be the one to redeem and, and restore all things. He says, stop looking to yourselves. Stop looking to other, other men and women and leaders who are all broken just like you are. And look to Christ. Look to Him as the hope of the world. And when the scriptures call us to change, when it calls us to this new way of living, 
what Paul and, and the other writers of Scripture, they're doing, they're calling us to recognize if Jesus is your hope, then that hope will transform you and your life will begin to look like this. Because when your life looks like the old way, that's simply going back to those old, disappointing hopes that we have for ourselves. And, and so when Paul writes to the Romans and, and when we, these words come to us, He's saying, remember where your hope lies. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Notice that this appeal that Paul makes, it comes by what? Not by human effort, not by my will or or your will. Not by trying a little bit harder. No, he appeals to them by the mercies of God. That the ability to live as a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God, it solely comes through that grace and that mercy that God offers us in Jesus. That the change that God desires is not us acting out of another new place of of self-reliance, but rather it is being acted upon by the gospel. It, It is the gospel that makes this transformation possible. Right? Notice it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed. The language is passive. It is the gospel that does the transforming of our lives. Not our efforts or or, or desires or our wills. It is the gospel that transforms. That transformation that we are called to, it is this learning to live in that centrality of the gospel. To live as one who is deeply loved by the creator of all things. And it's that gospel that enables us to go and see others not as enemies or threats to our well-being, but as fellow broken, sinful people who are in the same need of grace as I am. And so it's no surprise then that the mark of the life that Paul calls Christians to is primarily marked by one word, love. Verse 9, he says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be, in, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now you notice that here, that the love that Paul speaks of, he's primarily focused in this portion upon those who are within the body of Christ. That we are called to treat one another as family in the gospel. That by faith you and I are united to one another, therefore we are called to treat one another with love and kindness. We are called to drive out what is evil and divisive from our midst and rather hold fast to what God has revealed as good in his word. To love one another with that brotherly affection, not sibling rivalry, but rather brotherly affection, treating one another as our family in faith. 
We're called to outdo one another in showing honor, not trying to tear one another down in effort to build ourselves up, but always and constantly be looking for opportunities to lift each other up. Paul calls us to to rejoice in that hope that we have, to, to be patient in trials and tribulation as we await the coming of Christ, to be constant in prayer as we look to Jesus who is the source and foundation of our hope. And he calls us to to a life of of generosity, contributing to one another's needs and, and showing each other hospitality. We are called to live as this family of faith who are united together and unified in that common identity that we have in Jesus and the gifts of of grace and mercy and the gift of redemption that we've been given in baptism. But you'll notice that that call to love doesn't simply end on your way out of the church. Paul doesn't just say, love your brothers and sisters in the faith, but treat the rest of the world how you please. Now he says, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. And then he sums it all up. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Responding to evil and hatred, responding to persecution with more of it only multiplies evil and hatred in the world. Rather, we are called to overcome evil with good. You know, it it can be easy to to look at all these commands and exhortations that Paul gives and and just see this laundry list of of things to do. And, And I think it's maybe worthwhile to just sum it up like this. As the body of Christ, we are called to treat the world the way our God has treated us. We're called to go to the world to to bless them, to to mourn with them, to to rejoice with them, to to seek peace rather than vengeance with them, to to feed and and clothe them, to to give them things to drink, to, to seek to overcome good with e- to overcome evil with good because that is precisely the way our god came to us we have a god who did not respond to our sin and our rebellion with anger he didn't come with bloodshed or violence but rather our god came to us mercifully in his son jesus christ He came to us with with kindness, calling those who would take up arms and fight to lay down their swords and to receive the Messiah who comes in love and self-sacrifice. 
Our God came to us laying down his own life for us. Our God, he came and his M.O. was to come and overcome evil with good. And when that is your hope, our call is to go and do the same. To to go and and show the world a, a piece of what our hope is. To, to go into the world, to, to feed and clothe and, and be near the, the hurting and, and the broken. You know, I, uh, I, I've watched the news uh, a little bit lately. Uh, and, and I think if you've turned on your, your television for, for even a moment, you know uh, of the amount of, of hurt uh, that is is taking place in our country right now, and, and it it feels sort of like again. And and, and I've seen uh, you know a lot a lot of people you know make these these emboldened cries to to Christians and and to clergy that you know you need to stand up and and say something and and decry this. And, and certainly, I, I think the gospel it, it itself really ought to call us to to say. Any sort of notion that that a a race or a people group is somehow better than another group, it, it, without a doubt, is antithetical to the gospel itself. But but I think ultimately for us, for the church, nothing changes. At the end of the day we are still called to be a people who first and foremost are about Jesus. And that he is not only our hope, but the hope of the entire world. That the healing and, and, and the reconciliation that, that the world desires and that our country desires between people of all races and, and ethnic backgrounds that the place that that is found is in Jesus. And so what our world needs right now is for us to continue to go and be this people that our hope makes us into. To go live shaped by this love of our good and our gracious God. To to go and, and display to the world what our God is like. And so, and so let that simply be the command, the, the, the call for us to remember who the gospel makes us. To remember that the gospel makes us people who, who are loved by God no matter what. That the gospel makes us people who who are broken, who are sinful, people who were once far off because of sin, but are now brought near through the blood of Jesus. And let us go live as those people. Live as people who are loved by God. With the hope that the world might see just a, a bit of the hope that he has in store for us. Amen.